section twenty three of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain george eliot's maggie tulliver and hetty sorrel in george eliot we come to the greatest talent in english fiction after jane austen but a talent of vastly wider and deeper reach than that delicate and delightful artist and of a far more serious import it is useless to compare any of her contemporaries with this great woman in the expectation of finding them her equals except in that poor expression which was from their singularities rather than their qualities neither dickens with his dramatic or theatric picturesqueness nor thackeray with his moralized mockery his sentimentalized satire nor reed with his self-celebrated discoveries in character and manners nor anthony trollope with his immense quiet ruminant reality ox-like cropping the field of english life and converting its succulent juices into the nourishing beef of his fiction none of these writers can match with the author of adam bede and the mill on the floss and Bromola and middlemarch in the things which give a novelist the highest claim to the reader's interest hawthorne arriving at effects of equal seriousness from a quarter so opposite to hers among her contemporaries can alone rival her in the respect not to say the reverence of criticism it was not till the wide canvases of thomas hardy began to glow with the light and colour the mystery and the comedy and tragedy with which he best knows how to paint and which became the expression of a supreme mastery in his jude it was not till these appeared that it could be felt george eliot had a peer in late english fiction but if there is a power in the christianity which she disowned but which never disowned her profounder than the farthest reach of fatalism even mr hardy cannot stand beside her she had many and lamentable defects the very seriousness and sincerity of her motive implied them her learning overweighted her knowledge her conscience clogged her art her strong grasp of human nature was weakened by foibles of manner the warmth of her womanly sympathies and the subtlety of her womanly intuitions failed of their due effect because the sympathies were sometimes hysterical and the intuitions were sometimes over intellectualized her immense reading which freed her from the worst influences of the english example in fiction cumbered her with pedantic acquisitions under which her style laboured conscious and diffuse her just sense of her own power fostered a kind of intellectual vanity fatal to art in which she first personally intruded herself into the story and thackeraysquely commented upon the facts and persons without the thackeraysque lightness or the thackeraysque convention that it is all a make-believe anyway this foible becomes positive offensive and pernicious in the mill on the floss but it is right to add that it has there its worst effect and that in later stories it gradually disappears one 
if we choose maggie tulliver for the representative woman of george eliot as we chose lucy fountain in the case of charles reed we shall at least be going no farther wrong i think she is at any rate typical of that order of heroine which her author most strongly imagined not quite upon the miltonian formula for a poem of simple sensuous passionate but upon such a variation of it as should read complex sensuous passionate she is of all the kinds of heroines the most difficult for men justly to appreciate and in their failure something of the ignoble slight they feel for her attaches also to her creator they are ashamed for a woman who could give herself with her heart as passionately as they seek women without their hearts the fact will not be easily put into words and if it be forced it demands terms too plain for print but it underlies the vital difference between the grosser make of men and the finer make of women above all others tolstoy has suggested it in the natasha rostoff in his war and peace but most novelists shy off from it leaving their readers to make what they can of the recorded events and in english fiction george eliot has alone recognized it so recognizably as not to leave it to the reader her heroines souls are incarnate in bodies that glow with passion none the less but all the more pure because it is a flame maggie tulliver conscientious intellectual is compact of it dorothea casaubon in middlemarch loves ladislaw from it as romola loves tito melema in the romance of her name poor little hetty sorrel in adam bede is betrayed as much by it as by her vanity dinah morris herself is not without it in daniel deronda gwendolen harleth is redeemed by it at least in the reader's pity two it is by her nature complex passionate sensuous by her sex intellectualized and spiritualized that she is most important to the reader in her relations to her brother which are apparently the chief interest of the book she is interestingly and novelly studied but these though they involve the catastrophe do not involve the climax that is reached as it seems to me not when she and tom are drowned together in the flood of the floss but when her reason and her conscience are provisionally overborne by her love for stephen guest and she floats with him down a tide and out upon a sea more perilous than any inundation and saves herself only by a powerful impulse of her will which is almost a convulsion the fruition of her love would have been a double treason treason to her cousin lucy who was guest's betrothed and treason to philip wakin to whom she was herself pledged and the sense of this blackened it with guilt and turned it to despair even while she yielded and yielded to the love of being loved never has an unhappy passion been more faithfully studied in a character with strength enough finally to forbid it or more subtly felt from that first moment when maggie begins to rejoice in her beauty because of her love for the man who loves it till that last moment when she refuses to marry him and goes back to suffer shame rather than to merit shame 
every step of the way is accurately and firmly traced up to that passage where stephen guest comes to ask her to row with him on the river and from which there seems no retreat oh we can't go said maggie sinking into her chair again lucy did not expect she would be hurt why is not philip come he is not well he asked me to come instead lucy is gone to lindum said maggie taking off her bonnet with hurried trembling fingers we must not go very well said stephen dreamily looking at her as he rested his arm on the back of his chair then we'll stay here he was looking into her deep deep eyes far off and mysterious as the starlit blackness and yet very near and timidly loving maggie sat perfectly still perhaps for moments perhaps for minutes until the helpless trembling had ceased and there was a warm glow on her cheek let us go stephen murmured entreatingly rising and taking her hand to raise her too we shall not be long together and they went maggie felt that she was being led down the garden among the roses being helped with firm tender care into the boat having the cushion and cloak arranged for her feet and her parasol opened for her which she had forgotten all by this stronger presence that seemed to bear her along without any act of her own will like the added self which comes with the sudden exalting influence of a strong tonic and she felt nothing else memory was excluded oh have we passed luckreth where we were to stop she exclaimed looking back to see if the place were out of sight no village was to be seen she turned round again with a look of distressed questioning at stephen he went on watching the water and said in a strange dreamy absent tone yes a long way oh what shall i do cried maggie in an agony we shall not get home for hours and lucy oh god help me she clasped her hands and broke into a sob like a frightened child she thought of nothing but of meeting lucy and seeing her look of pained surprise and doubt perhaps of just upbraiding stephen moved and sat near her and gently drew down the clasped hands maggie he said in a deep tone of slow decision let us never go home again till no one can part us till we are married the unusual tone the startling words arrested maggie's sob and she sat quite still wondering as if stephen might have seen some possibilities that would alter everything and annul the wretched facts let me go she said in an agitated tone flashing an indignant look at him and trying to get her hands free you have wanted to deprive me of any choice you knew we were come too far you have dared to take advantage of my thoughtlessness it is unmanly to bring me into such a position stung by this reproach he released her hands moved back to his former place and folded his arms in a sort of desperation at the difficulty maggie's words had made present to him the indignant fire in her eyes was quenched and she began to look at him with timid distress she had reproached him for being hurried into irrevocable trespass 
she who had been so weak herself as if i shouldn't feel what happened to you just the same she said with reproach of another kind the reproach of love asking for more trust this yielding to the idea of stephen's suffering was more fatal than the other yielding because it was less distinguishable from that sense of others claims which was the moral basis of her resistance he felt all the relenting in her look and tone it was heaven opening again he moved to her side and took her hand leaning his elbow on the back of the boat and saying nothing they glided along in this way both resting in that silence as in a haven both dreading lest their feelings should be divided again till they became aware that the clouds had gathered and that the slightest perceptible freshening of the breeze was growing and growing so that the whole character of the day was altered you will be chill maggie in this thin dress let me raise the cloak over your shoulders get up an instant dearest maggie obeyed there was an unspeakable charm in being told what to do and having everything decided for her presently stephen observed a vessel coming after them maggie dearest he said at last if this vessel should be going to mudport or to any convenient place on the coast northward it would be our best plan to get them to take us on board maggie's heart began to beat with reawakened alarm at this new proposition but she was silent one course seemed as difficult as another stephen hailed the vessel it was a dutch vessel going to mudport the english mate informed him and if this wind held out would be there in less than two days maggie was to sleep all night in the poop it was better than going below and she was covered with the warmest wrappings the ship could furnish it was still early when the fatigues of the day brought on a drowsy longing for perfect rest and she laid down her head looking at the faint dying flush in the west where the one golden lamp was getting brighter and brighter then she looked up at stephen who was still seated by her hanging over her as he leaned against the vessel's side behind all the delicious visions of these last hours which had flowed over her like a soft stream and made her entirely passive there was the dim consciousness that the condition was a transient one and that the morrow must bring back the old life of struggle that there were thoughts which would presently avenge themselves for this oblivion daybreak came and the reddening eastern light while her past life was grasping her in this way with that tightening clutch which comes in the last moments of possible rescue she could see stephen now lying on the deck still fast asleep and with the sight of him there came a wave of anguish that found its way in a long suppressed sob here we are in sight of mudport he said at last now dearest he added turning toward her with a look that was half beseeching the worst part of your fatigue is over on the land we can command swiftness in another hour and a half we shall be in a chaise together and that will seem rest to you after this maggie felt it was time to speak it would only be unkind now to assent by silence she spoke in the lowest tone as he had done but with distinct decision we shall not be together we shall have parted 
the blood rushed to stephen's face we shall not he said i'll die first it was as he had dreamed there was a struggle coming but neither of them dared to say another word till the boat was let down and they were taken to the landing-place a porter guided them to the nearest inn and posting-house and stephen gave the order for the chaise as they passed through the yard maggie took no notice of this and only said ask them to show us into a room where we can sit down we must not wait she said in a low but distinct voice we must part at once we will not part stephen burst out instinctively placing his back against the door forgetting everything he had said a few moments before i will not endure it you will make me desperate i shan't know what i do maggie trembled her heart beat like the heart of a frightened bird but this direct opposition helped her she felt her determination growing stronger maggie dearest if you love me you are mine who can have so great a claim on you as i have my life is bound up in your love there is nothing in the past that can annul our right to each other it is the first time we have either of us loved with our whole heart and soul maggie was still silent for a little while looking down stephen was in a flutter of new hope he was going to triumph but she raised her eyes and met his with a glance that was filled with the anguish of regret not with yielding no not with my whole heart and soul stephen she said with timid resolution i have never consented to it with my whole mind there are memories and affections and longings after perfect goodness that have such a strong hold on me they would never quit me for long they would come back and be pain to me repentance i couldn't live in peace if i put the shadow of a wilful sin between myself and god i have caused sorrow already i know i feel it but i have never deliberately consented to it i have never said they shall suffer that i may have joy it has never been my will to marry you if you were to win consent from the momentary triumph of my feeling for you you would not have my whole soul if i could wake back again into the time before yesterday i would choose to be true to my calmer affections and live without the joy of love again a deep flush came over maggie's face and she was silent stephen thought again that he was beginning to prevail he had never yet believed that he should not prevail there are possibilities which our minds shrink from too completely for us to fear them dearest he said in his deepest tenderest tone leaning toward her and putting his arm round her you are mine now the world believes it duty must spring out of that now in a few hours you will be legally mine and those who had claims on us will submit they will see that there was a force which declared against their claims maggie's eyes opened wide in one terrified look at the face that was close to hers and she started up pale again oh i can't do it she said in a voice almost of agony stephen don't ask me don't urge me i can't argue any longer i don't know what is wise but my heart will not let me do it 
i see i feel their trouble now it is as if it were branded on my mind i have suffered and had no one to pity me and now i have made others suffer it would never leave me it would embitter your love to me good god maggie said stephen rising too and grasping her arm you rave how can you go back without marrying me you don't know what will be said dearest you see nothing as it really is yes i do but they will believe me i will confess everything lucy will believe me she will forgive you and and oh some good will come by clinging to the right dear dear stephen let me go don't drag me into deeper remorse my whole soul has never consented it does not consent now stephen let go her arm and sank back on the chair half stunned by despairing rage he was silent a few moments not looking at her while her eyes were turned toward him yearningly in alarm at this sudden change at last he said still without looking at her go then leave me don't torture me any longer i can't bear it involuntarily she leaned toward him and put out her hand to touch his but he shrank from it as if it had been burning iron and said again leave me three it does not seem to me that the true logic of the tale is maggie's death with tom tulliver or stephen's marriage with lucy it is a forced touch where the husband and wife stand together beside the grave of the brother and sister but in the novels the best of the novels fifty years ago they forced their touches rather more than they do now to kill people or to marry them is to beg the question but into some corner the novelist is commonly driven who deals with a problem it is only life that can deal masterfully with problems and life does not solve them by referring them to another life or by stifling them with happiness how life would have solved the problem of maggie tulliver i am not quite prepared to say but i have my revolt against george eliot's solution all the more i must own that the evolution of the heroine's character from the sort of undisciplined imaginative fascinating little girl we see her at first into the impassioned bewildered self-disciplined woman we see her at last is masterly having given my opinion that her supreme expression is in her relation to her lover i have my doubts or at least my compunctions in behalf of her relation to her brother unquestionably the greatest pathos of the story appeals to us from her relation to her brother the adoring dependence the grieving indignation the devotion the revolt the submission and the reunion which make up her love for him is such a study of sisterly affection as i should not know where to match the very conditions of her intellectual and emotional superiority involve a moral inferiority to the brute simplicity the narrow integrity the heroic truth of the more singly natured man maggie saw life more whole than tom but that part of it which he saw he discerned with a clearness denied to her large but cloudy vision it is a great and beautiful story which one reads with a helpless wonder that such a book should ever be in any wise superseded or should not constantly keep the attention at least of those fitted to feel its deep 
and lasting significance four through the immeasurably greater importance of its heroine the mill and the floss is a greater book than adam bede if we are to take hetty sorrel for the heroine of adam bede as i suppose we must and not dinah morris i have no doubt but the author gave her best work to the portrayal of dinah's nature and not in any merely voluntary or mechanical way but from the highest artistic perception and intention she is revealed in her character one of the highest types of womanhood and of sainthood and yet it is poor shallow weak sinful hetty with the mind of a child scarcely maturing through the will if not the guilt of a murderess that takes our interest from this great woman and saint and holds us heart-wrung and gasping in the presence of that squalid experience soul for soul even the light man who betrays hetty has through the anguish of his repentance really a higher claim upon our pity but it is a law which must be divine though we find it embodied in human justice nowhere out of fiction that the weak and slight nature has a paramount right to our sympathy when it suffers its suffering moves us like that of some hapless little animal agonizing before our eyes in throes for which we can imagine no compensation elsewhere for the soul that suffers there is the possibility of an eternity of happiness but for the thing that has no soul or to which we attribute none there is no reparation its anguish affects the spectator like an injustice a wrong not less atrocious because indefinable it does not matter that hetty sorrel is a vain thin hard little nature snared through nothing better perhaps than her vulgar fancy her ignorant and selfish ambition all the same she is snared she is deceived she is blotted out of hope as effectually as if she were in the scope of the story blotted out of life the author's hold upon her nature it can hardly be called her character is shown in nothing more than in the artistic conscience with which she keeps her from becoming more or other than her moral potentialities imply there are two great passages in her history almost as far apart as its beginning and its ending which give the whole range of her spiritual experience and one of these will occur to the reader as the passage in which the poor creature triumphs in her beauty with her first definite hopes of arthur donathorne's love it occurs in the chapter called the two bedchambers where dinah and hetty sleep in the farmhouse and while dinah is dedicating herself in thoughts that are cares and prayers hetty is peacocking up and down her little room in worship of her own pretty looks having taken off her gown and white kerchief she drew a key from the large pocket that hung outside her petticoat and unlocking one of the lower drawers in the chest reached from it two short bits of wax candle secretly bought at treddleston and stuck them in the two brass sockets then she drew forth a bundle of matches and lighted the candles and last of all a small red-framed shilling looking-glass without blotches it was into this small glass that she chose to look first after seating herself she looked into it smiling and turning her head on one side for a minute then laid it down and took out her brush and comb from an upper drawer she was going to let down her hair and make herself look like that picture of a lady in miss lydia donathorne's dressing-room 
it was soon done and the dark hyacinthine curves fell on her neck it was not heavy massive merely rippling hair but soft and silken running at every opportunity into delicate rings but she pushed it all backward to look like the picture and form a dark curtain throwing into relief her round white neck then she put down her brush and comb and looked at herself folding her arms before her still like the picture oh yes she was very pretty captain donnithorne thought so prettier than anybody about hayslope prettier than any of the ladies she had ever seen visiting at the chase indeed it seemed fine ladies were rather old and ugly and prettier than miss bacon the miller's daughter who was called the beauty of treddleston and hetty looked at herself to-night with quite a different sensation from what she had ever felt before there was an invisible spectator whose eye rested on her like morning on the flowers his soft voice was saying over and over again those pretty things she had heard in the wood his arm was round her and the delicate rose scent of his hair was with her still the vainest woman is never thoroughly conscious of her own beauty till she is loved by the man who sets her own passion vibrating in return but hetty seemed to have made up her mind that something was wanting for she got up and reached an old black lace scarf out of the linen press and a pair of large earrings out of the sacred drawer from which she had taken her candles it was an old old scarf full of rents but it would make a becoming border round her shoulders and set off the whiteness of her upper arm and she would take out the little earrings she had in her ears oh how her aunt had scolded her for having her ears bored and put in those large ones they were but coloured glass and gilding but if you didn't know what they were made of they looked just as well as what the ladies wore and so she sat down again with the large earrings in her ears and the black lace scarf adjusted round her shoulders she looked down at her arms no arms could be prettier down to a little way below the elbow they were white and plump and dimpled to match her cheeks but towards the wrist she thought with vexation that they were coarsened by butter-making and other work that ladies never did captain donnithorne wouldn't like her to go on doing work he would like to see her in nice clothes and thin shoes and white stockings perhaps with silk clocks to them for he must love her very much no one else had ever put his arm around her and kissed her in that way he would want to marry her and make a lady of her she could hardly dare to shape the thought yet how else could it be and nothing could be as it had been again perhaps some day she should be a grand lady and ride in her coach and dress for dinner in a brocaded silk with feathers in her hair and her dress sweeping the ground like miss lydia and lady dacey when she saw them going into the dining-room one evening as she peeped through the little round window in the lobby only she should not be old and ugly like miss lydia or all the same thickness like lady dacey but very pretty with her hair done in a great many different ways and sometimes in a pink dress and sometimes in a white one she didn't know which she liked best and mary burge and everybody would perhaps see her going out in her carriage or rather they would hear of it it was impossible to imagine these things happening at hayslope in sight of her aunt at the thought of all this splendour hetty got up from her chair and in doing so caught the little red-framed glass with the edge of her scarf so that it fell with a bang on the floor but she was too eagerly occupied with her vision to care about picking it up and after a momentary start began to pace with a 
pigeon-like stateliness backward and forward along her room in her coloured stays and coloured skirt and the old black lace scarf round her shoulders and the great glass earrings in her ears no eyelashes could be more beautiful than hetty's and now while she walks with her pigeon-like stateliness along the room and looks down on her shoulders bordered by the old black lace the dark fringe shows to perfection on her pink cheek they are but dim ill-defined pictures that her narrow bit of an imagination can make of the future but of every picture she is the central figure in fine clothes captain donnithorne is very close to her putting his arm round her perhaps kissing her and everybody else is admiring and envying her especially mary burge whose new print dress looks very contemptible by the side of hetty's resplendent toilet does any sweet or sad memory mingle with this dream of the future any loving thought of her second parents of the children she had helped to tend of any youthful companion any pet animal any relic of her own childhood even not one there are some plants that have hardly any roots you may tear them from their native nook of rock or wall and just lay them over your ornamental flower-pot and they blossom none the worse five the whole dark fateful drama the drama predestined of the contact of such natures as hetty sorrels and arthur donnithorne's passes between this typical scene and the other of which i wish to remind the reader that has happened which must happen with a spirit so selfish and shallow as hers and a spirit so selfish and soft as his and though his guilt is greater because his knowledge is greater she is guilty to the limit of her lesser knowledge when the man who loves her with the love of the husband he had hoped to be compels her paramour to break with her but too late and when hetty can no longer hide her shame she seeks to hide herself from all who know her she runs away from home and when her time comes and her child is born she is tempted to kill it it is found dead though she has not killed it and its death is traced to her and she is condemned to die for the deed she is thought to do but has not done the night before she is appointed to suffer she is in her cell with dinah morris watching and praying beside her dinah hetty sobbed out throwing her arms round dinah's neck i will speak i will tell i won't hide it any more but the tears and sobs were too violent dinah raised her gently from her knees and seated her on the pallet again sitting down by her side it was a long time before the convulsed throat was quiet and even then they sat some time in stillness and darkness holding each other's hands at last hetty whispered i didn't do it dinah i buried it in the wood and it cried i heard it cry ever such a way off all night and i went back because it cried she paused and then spoke hurriedly in a louder pleading tone but i thought perhaps it wouldn't die there might somebody find it i didn't kill it i didn't kill it myself i put it down there and covered it up when i came back it was gone it was because i was so very miserable dinah i didn't know where to go and i tried to kill myself before and i couldn't or i tried so to drown myself in the pool and i couldn't i went to windsor i ran away did you know i went to find him as he might take care of me and he was gone and then i didn't know what to do i dared not go back home again i couldn't bear it i couldn't have borne to look at anybody for they'd have scorned me i thought of you sometimes and thought i'd come to you for i didn't think you'd be cross with me and cry shame on me i thought i could tell you and i came to a haystack where i thought i could lie down and keep myself warm all night there was a place cut into it where i could make me a bed and i lay comfortable and the baby was warm against me and i must have gone to sleep for a good while for when i woke it was morning 
but not very light and the baby was crying and i saw a wood a little way off i thought there'd perhaps be a ditch or a pond there and it was so early i thought i could hide the child there and get a long way off before the folks was up and then i thought i'd go home i'd get rides and carts and go home and tell em i'd been to try and see for a place and couldn't get one i longed so for it dinah i longed so to be safe at home i don't know how i felt about the baby i seemed to hate it it was like a heavy weight hanging round my neck and yet its crying went through me and i dared not look at its little hands and face but i went on to the wood and i walked about but there was no water hetty shuddered she was silent for some moments and when she began again it was in a whisper i came to a place where there were lots of chips and turf and i sat down on the trunk of a tree to think what i should do and all of a sudden i saw a hole under the nut tree like a little grave and it darted into me like lightning i'd lay the baby there and cover it with the grass and the chips i couldn't kill it any other way and i'd done it in a minute and oh it cried so down i couldn't cover it quite up i thought perhaps somebody'd come and take care of it and then it wouldn't die and i made haste out of the wood but i could hear it crying all the while and when i got out into the fields it was as if i was held fast i couldn't go away for all i wanted so to go but it was morning for it kept getting lighter and i turned back the way i'd come i couldn't help it dinah it was the baby's crying made me go and yet i was frightened to death i saw nothing but that place in the wood where i'd buried the baby i see it now oh dinah shall i always see it hetty hung round dinah and shuddered again the silence seemed long before she went on i met nobody for it was very early and i got into the wood i knew the way to the place the place against the nut tree and i could hear it crying at every step i thought it was alive i don't know whether i was frightened or glad i don't know what i felt i only know i was in the wood and heard the cry i don't know what i felt till i saw the baby was gone and when i'd put it there i thought i should like somebody to find it and save it from dying but when i saw it was gone i was struck like a stone with fear i never thought of stirring i felt so weak i knew i couldn't run away and everybody as saw me would know about the baby my heart went like a stone i couldn't wish or try for anything it seemed like as if i should stay there forever and nothing would ever change but they came and took me away hetty was silent but she shuddered again as if there were still something behind and dinah waited for her heart was so full that tears must come before words at last hetty burst out with a sob dinah do you think god will take away that crying and the place in the wood now i've told everything let us pray poor sinner let us fall on our knees again and pray to the god of all mercy six it is a mark of maturing power in an author to deal more with complex and less with simple character acquaintance with life brings an increasing sense of the prevalence of mixed motives in the actions of men and a keener perception of the fact that personality resides rather in the motives than the actions of men an action is black or white a motive is commonly the blend of several if not all the colors this law of life the ripening talent gladly makes the law of its art but there is another law rather of the author's nature than his art to which his allegiance is involuntary and insensible and this is the law of recurrence in the types he treats adam bede was george eliot's first great novel and its characters imposing and important as they were were almost primitively simple then came the mill on the floss where the characters are mainly simple but where we have in maggie tulliver a personality worthy in its complexity of the maturing power of the author 
in romola a later book there is a reversion in the heroine to the singly motive types of the earlier books and in middlemarch which came still later the characters are so subtly studied that with the exception of rosamond vincey's plain selfishness the motives of nearly all good bad and indifferent are found as mixed as they would be in life in daniel deronda we see not a recurrence to the original simplicity in the motives of the persons represented but rather the matured power of showing them complex beginning to fall into decay to weaken and to fail of the supreme effects achieved in middlemarch it may almost be said that in romola george eliot as an artist came to what tolstoy in the moral world calls the first consciousness in tito malema she must have rejoiced with full knowledge as the prime figure in english fiction since shakespeare's men to illustrate the play of mixed motives in character that consummate scoundrel is indeed a glorious achievement but romola generously as she is imagined is comparatively a failure she is not an italian of the renaissance she is not an italian at all she is a deeply ethicized intellectual englishwoman of the nineteenth century with a protestant conscience and a middle-class tradition moved by puritanic principles which even if we suppose her a florentine piagnone and a follower of savonarola would not have actuated a bardi in the time of the declining republic she is spiritually a reversion to dinah morris though appointed to such different offices in the story as tessa her husband's ignorant little paramour is a reversion to hetty sorrel tessa of course has nothing of hetty's ignorant ambition and there is no tragedy of self-deceit in her case she has given herself to tito because she has been asked and not because she has ever dreamt of marrying him she is as soft as hetty is hard and she is not vain she is a contadina as hetty is a country girl and tito in her dim world holds the same high place that donnithorne holds in hetty's but her fate is not so terrible because in that old italy still pagan under the christian forms there is no such tragedy for her as for hetty in a time and a place where the christian ideal of womanhood had made the fear of shame stronger than even the fear of crime End of section twenty three